Well, what does it mean to uh, identify with someone? Have you ever had somebody really identify with you in your high points or your low points? Have you ever had a boss who, maybe it's end of year review, end of a big project, called you in their office, looked you in the eye, and identified with you by saying, we couldn't do this without you. We are so glad to have you on our team. The strengths you bring to our team make the whole team better. And they identified with your strengths and they identified with your contribution. Like, no, I haven't actually, but sure would be nice. <laughs> How about if you ever identified with the organization? Remember the first organization you joined? Maybe it was Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. Maybe it was ringing the bell for Salvation Army or joining the NRA. And when you did that, you basically were saying, I want to publicly identify with this group. I'm ringing the bell. I'm wearing the, the shirt. You are identifying with a core value. You're identifying with that organization and things that were true to them were now true to you. How about if you ever had anyone identify with you during a valley? You were really lonely, maybe depressed, maybe a crisis. Maybe there's a rumor going around about you and all your friends sort of scattered your friends. But somebody called, and instead of distancing themselves, they said, I want to be there for you right here and right now in the middle of this. And you felt identified with in your grief, in your sorrow, and in your low point. Today we're going to talk about what it means to identify with God and for God to identify with us. That God listens, God engages, God publicly affirms and what he's going to do with his son in publicly affirming him is an offer to each one of us that he wants to do the same for you and I. Because identifying with someone is one of the greatest ways to be generous with someone. Generous with your, with your comfort, generous with your praise, generous with your words. Identifying with someone is one of the greatest ways that you can be generous to someone, even in their highs or even in their lows. That's what we're looking at today in a very small passage of Scripture. We're looking at what it means to identify, identification, and proclamation. And I hope as we do that, one, you're going to see what it's like for you to publicly identify with God, but also for Him to publicly identify with you. But also the series is called What Child Is This? Because we're going to see how Jesus' life confirmed His birth. You ever wonder, like, how do we know for sure Jesus is God? How do we know for sure he's the Messiah? How do we know for sure he's the way, not Buddha, not Muhammad? Luke has done extensive research for us to give us evidence that we can identify God himself because of all the evidence he puts together in these three little verses. More than that, as a personal skill, we're going to see how a father talks to his son, the father and the son, and develop a skill that you and I can have to speak to our wives and husbands and sons and daughters, to affirm them and be generous with our words. The passage is short. It says, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And when you think of baptism, many of us import into that idea whatever you grew up with. And so if you grew up Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian, you probably think of a baby being baptized and being sprinkled. If you grow up Baptist, you think of immersion and adult or believer baptism going under the water. 
I often thought we could, we could sort of bring everybody together on that by putting a slip and slide down the middle of the church with a big like pool at the end. And if you wanted to get, uh, you know, sprinkled, you could stand on the sides and be sprinkled if something went, you know, down the middle of it and they plunge you to the bottom and be immersed. We'd all be happy. What we're going to find today is that this baptism is happening prior to the church. This is a different type of baptism than even what's practiced in the book of Luke. This is a very specific baptism prior to Jesus that was practiced by a group called the Essenes who lived in the desert, who had a very much, God's going to judge everybody else, we're building a righteous community. So we're going to learn about this specific baptism they had and what it meant for the people coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized We're going to get some research from the Dead Sea Scrolls to show what they did, what they practiced. And the reason we think John the Baptist was in a scene is because they were regularly doing baptisms. And he starts his ministry with a baptism preparing yourself for the coming of Jesus. That's what we're going to look at today. So our first point is this. Identification. Baptism is, is is a process of identification. You identify with someone's death and life. One of the reasons we practice immersion baptism here at Horizon, oh, I'm fell there, um, is because we want to identify people's lows and people's highs. And so when you go under the water, it's actually a symbol or a picture that you're identifying with Christ's death. You've, you've died with him. Your past sins, your present sins, and future sins are all buried with him. Thank goodness he was raised from the grave or we would all be drowned because then we identify with his, his life when we come up out of the water. And that's why immersion is such a beautiful picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And like Jesus, we dedicate children as children, uh, like Jesus was dedicated in the temple. And then later when they come to a decision of faith, we baptize them using this imagery. And we baptize people typically once. Because it's a symbol of a, of a decision they made in their heart. But we're going to see that this baptism was something that happened regularly. This is a very different kind of baptism. In fact, one of the things we love, uh, two or three times a year we'll have a baptism out in the terrace. And so we have families gathered together, sometimes dozens of people, families together, moms, dads baptizing kids, Sunday school leader, teachers, and, and small group leaders baptizing friends. It's just one of my favorite services that we do each year. This year we even did a, a person who wanted to be baptized in the, in the little Miami. So right down here at Bass Island, we had a baptism. Very personal, very meaningful. Public identification with Jesus. Public identification with faith before friends. That's what baptism is about. And as a church, that's what we really want to practice. We want to identify with people in their highs. Rejoice with those who rejoice. But also in their lows. To weep with those who weep. Last Sunday night, there was a casket right here. We had a funeral for a 40-year-old father. And I walked down this aisle with his wife and his three kids. And it was very difficult. And his wife and his family said, make sure it's clear that as tragic and as shocking as unexpected as this is, that you clearly tell people why we're able to endure this, because we know we're going to see him again, and speak about his belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we're rubbing that hope into our grief. And so whether it's baptism, whether it's funerals, the church 
enters in and identifies with people in their highs and their low points in the same way that baptism is our identification with Jesus in his low point and his high point as well. Now this baptism practiced by the Essenes, I'm going to give you a little detail on where we found the scroll evidence for this. So I want to take you on a little journey with me to Qumran. So we're going to travel to Qumran. So we go to Qumran here. This is where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in finding the Dead Sea Scrolls in these caves, a shepherd boy threw a rock up into one of these caves and he heard a piece of uh, pottery break. They found pieces of of pottery here in this archaeological find that jumped back copies of our, our Bible manuscripts by hundreds of years. So all the evidence that said, hey, the Bible's really had lots of mistakes come in, this really dispelled that whole notion. But we also found this community of, of people living here in Qumran. And this community had lots and lots, you can see them here on the left, coming up on the right, lots and lots of mikvahs, or what look like giant bathtubs that you would come down into. Because part of the community here, and, and we found scrolls of them showing their mode of operation day to day, was that they would regularly be baptized, cleanse themselves daily, baptized daily to prepare themselves for God. They felt like the temple was corrupt and they were becoming the righteous ones. They were setting up a new priesthood in this community, in a desert, just like John the Baptist found himself in the desert a lot of the times. But they needed to be baptized with living water, which was moving water. So they set this incredible irrigation system 500 yards up. We hiked all the way up there, my wife and I with a group. And up there they dammed out some water so they could then send a, a trickle system down to fill up these mikvahs so that they could be baptized not in stagnant water, but in living or moving water. Because they believed God's judgment was going to come against all those in Jerusalem, and they were going to be the new priesthood. And so they were baptizing themselves in preparation for that. So keep that in mind as we get to this baptism happening here in the book of Luke. It says all the people were baptized, and Jesus also was baptized. Why is Jesus being baptized? He doesn't need to identify with his own sin and and resurrection. No, it's a different type of baptism. And I want to show you a little bit about this baptism. The Essene baptism, number one, was an identification that you need to be washed by God. God needed to wash you and cleanse you. It's my wife right here next to one of the mikvahs. The word mikvah actually comes from a, a word used in the Hebrew in Genesis that God gathered or he mikvahed the waters together. In the same way, when the Babylonians came and really crushed and destroyed the temple, there was no longer a place to do sacrifices, to wash yourself, like we learned in Leviticus at the Levar, to wash yourself before coming to sacred space. So they set up synagogues all over the world. Think of them like Sunday schools. They weren't temple. They were a place to learn the Bible. But next to almost every synagogue, archaeological finds, you'll see mikvahs, where you would wash yourself... As a reminder, I need to be washed to come into God's presence. So you would go into mikvah, you'd come out, you'd come into synagogue to hear God's word read. And so the Essene baptism was a reminder when you came into God's presence, when you came into God's community, when you came to hear God's word, oh, I need to be washed by God again. And there were three types of baptisms that the Essenes practiced. The first one was called the Rishama baptism. This is something you did daily, and you didn't need a priest for it. Just daily, God needed to be washed again. God needed to be reminded I need washed. There was the Tamasha baptism, which often happened uh, in a river, and it was a triple immersion. If the water was deep enough, you'd walk out into the water with your hands like this, and you would actually submerge yourself while standing up one, two, and three. 
In fact, it says in Mark that when Jesus came out of the water, he was standing upright. Versus all the, the movies we have him having a, a modern-day baptism, he was probably practicing the Tamasha baptism. In this third type, it's called the Meshbuddha baptism, and that you need a priest. You would confess your sins and be reminded that God could cleanse you of your sins through this type of baptism. So first thing we learn is that it's a reminder you need to be washed. But even in Jewish tradition, we find that it's also, even before Jesus brings this concept up, in the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts, we find evidence that baptism was a picture that you needed to be born again. If you were a, a Gentile proselyte and you wanted to become a Hebrew, you had to be baptized in the community, identify with the community, identify with Jehovah, identify with the need to be washed by him. So much so that in the Talmud, it says this, one who becomes a proselyte, becomes baptized in the community, is like a child newly born. And that the water was like the water of the womb. When you came up out of the water, it was a reminder of a new birth, that you were to be born again. So even this idea that Jesus speaks about and plugs into in John chapter 3 were ideas that God had put in place even in the Jewish community. Also a reminder from Leviticus that you need to be washed before you come into God's presence. Third, it seemed baptism was identification with the words of your spiritual father. One type of baptism is when you were triple immersing yourself, you would have a witness, your spiritual father, your mentor. In fact, this is where many people think we get the concept of a godfather. Where the Catholic Church, often your godfather is there at your infant baptism, that this goes all the way back to the Essenes. When you as an adult were being baptized, your spiritual mentor was a witness to your baptism, your godfather. And this was like an accountability baptism. Saying, hey, I want to I testify that this person is, is publicly identifying with the way of Jesus, and I have seen that in their life. He's learning how to confess his sin in ways he never has before. I've seen him love in ways he's never loved before. He's starting to give percentages of his income away. I'm starting to notice how she is choosing to be thankful rather than be critical. And so this Godfather would give testimony to your baptism, daily or even weekly, that you are following the way, identifying with the way. Now, it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians, there's a big fight going on between people uh, having divisions. And it seems like this concept's at play. They're making their godfather, the person that baptized them, more important than the ultimate person baptisms about Jesus. People saying, well, I'm of Apollo. Well, I am of, 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 of Paul. Why well, I was baptized of Jesus. And Paul says, well, listen, listen. It's great to have a spiritual mentor, but baptism is not about who baptized you. It's about who washed you, who died for you. So don't make the emphasis the fathers of your baptism. Make it your heavenly father of baptism. So these are some of the things at play here. So I want to show you, I got a chance to go to Israel. This is me standing by the Jordan River. And at the Jordan River, I had a spiritual godfather who was with us. It was the pastor of Merrimont Church, Dennis Bosinger. And you'll see Dennis is going to baptize me or be the witness to me being baptized as I do one of the Tamasha triple immersion baptisms. So take experience. This is at the actual Jordan River, close to a location we think John the Baptist was at. So this would be the feel of this day when people gathered together with John. Let's watch.
Now that's the mighty Jordan River. Doesn't it look small? It's like a big creek. It's running at about 3% of what it was during Bible times. It's 90 degrees outside, and that water is freezing cold. I've been baptizing it twice now. And it is moving fast. We had several people, if you don't get your feet hooked into the rocks, and we had several people to chase down because their baptism was taking them down the Jordan River. So this is the preparation for Jesus' baptism. I need to be washed. I need to be born again. I need to start walking in the way so I can be prepared for the ultimate one who's going to die for me. All of this was coming to bear here. And so Paul is going to say publicly when you get baptized, you're identifying with Jesus. In fact, he's going to use a clothing metaphor later. He will say, I want you daily, if you're going to walk in this way, to put on love, put on Christ, Put on your identification that he is your identity. He is your forgiveness. Think in modern times, there's certain people are known for what they wear. Right? Like, when you think of Steve Jobs, what does he always wear? His black turtleneck. So he's always got his black turtleneck on. He's doing his presentations. Or if you know who Chris Saka is, he's known for his embroidered cowboy outfits. He worked for Google for many, many years. And he got known for how he quickly escalated up the Google ranks... It's because he had a philosophy called show up to meetings. There would be an executive level meeting, and he was not an executive. He would just show up to the meeting at Google. What are you doing here? Uh, They asked me to take notes. Okay. Well, who's they? He just kept showing up to meetings and identifying with management and identifying with the group to the point at which he became like a rising star. He was speaking at a conference one day, and a shirt got spilled on, so he runs to the... uh, place in Reno and he gets this embroidered cowboy shirt only because it was the only thing available he got so known for that that he's only worn that cowboy shirt and that become his uh, his insignia in the same way instead of it being focused on the outside baptism is a public identification but Paul wants us to put on Christ that we are known for wearing humility for wearing love for wearing kindness for wearing the ability to bear with one another's burdens he'll say in Colossians Now, baptism is not just identification, it's also proclamation, and this is where it gets even better. Because Heavenly Father is going to identify with the Son, while the Son is publicly, through baptism, identifying with the Father. And we're going to see three aspects that God does to identify with the Son. Number one, it is a generous form that we can see and know. See, proclamation is I need to generously affirm the truth about you, about God, and about others. And we see the Father doing this here. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. He also publicly identified with his Father, with his Father's kingdom. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descends and identifies with him. Now remember, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is made out of spirit. He's not material. You can't see him. But at this moment, the Holy Spirit put on bodily form. The Holy Spirit incarnates itself in the form of a dove so that we can see it, have evidence of it. In the same way, and this is why this confirms his birth, in the same way that God, our Heavenly Father, incarnated himself in a human child... So that we could know and see and hold him and behold him. Here with all kinds of eyewitness testimony. The Holy Spirit puts on bodily form. Incarnates himself into a dove. Descends upon us just as God descends upon us. So that we can know that he's real. 
And then a voice from heaven speaks. And here we see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, publicly identifying with one another, publicly creating a form we can see and we can recognize. And this is actually what makes the God of the Bible very unique from the God of, say, Islam. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all say God is transcendent, meaning he's not like the pantheist. He's not in a chair. He's outside of creation. He's not in the tree. But where the Islam and Judaism has God so transcendent that he doesn't become imminent. In fact, it's considered blasphemy. If you say that uh, Allah, for example, would take on human form, that's considered blasphemy. That's beneath God that he would come and dwell and come down to our level. Versus Christianity said, no, that's the essence of of, of the God. God is both transcendent, but he made himself imminent. He put on a generous form. He generously was a multidimensional being who allowed himself to be put in one time in one place in a human form. And the answer of Christianity to Islam is, well, if your God is so great, how great is a God who won't get down and play with his children? I had a friend of mine who was a business owner oil industry, he's in his 40s, and he had a, a daughter who loved playing tea. But she would always set the table and chairs out in their driveway. Dad, do you want to come have tea? Walk out in the driveway with everybody and the whole neighborhood could see as he sat down in the little chair she had at the table and drank tea with his daughter. People driving by, that's a grown man for crying out loud. What are you doing in your driveway drinking tea? Crying out loud, grow up. A transcendent business professional who is willing to be imminent and intimate to get down to the level to have tea with his daughter. That's the God of the Bible. A generous form because he wanted us to know him and to behold him. Secondly, it's a generous word from the Father. What he says to his son is to be a generous word and an example, honestly, for you and I to be generous with our words. He looks at his son publicly with eyewitnesses that Luke recorded so we would know this really happened. It was confirmed by multiple witnesses. A voice from heaven looked down upon him and identified with him and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because he wants to know that you and I can hear the same words from our Heavenly Father. Not based on what we've done or haven't done, but the message of Jesus and the message of the Bible is when you put your faith in Christ, you can know for sure that the God who made the heavens and earth can look at you right here and right now with everything you've done wrong and everything you will do wrong And based on what Jesus did and your identification with him as Savior, he says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my beloved daughter. I'm proud to be your dad. You're my beloved son. Not because of what you've done, not because of your job, not because of your titles. I'm well pleased with you. Generous words, the heart of the gospel, that Jesus came to die so that we could know that through his death we are pleasing to our Heavenly Father. I remember when my son was baptized, he was 13, and as we were talking in the, 
in the swimming pool. Back then, we did in swimming pools in people's homes. I shared a little bit about Javen's journey, and I said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if you never heard that from your, heavenly fa- your earthly father, you can know it. it's true from your heavenly father. He wants you to know through Christ that you can be pleasing. Occasionally, we'll, once a year or so, we'll, we'll come at staff meetings and we'll put a stool up and we'll make one of our staff members come and sit and we'll make them be encouraged. And nobody wants to do it initially. It's like, oh, this is so awkward. And we go around and everyone publicly affirms, man, the, the way you do detail work around here is so amazing. Oh, you've been such a great friend. I remember the time you. And for about 20 minutes, we pour affirmation into our staff members. Let them know why we care about them, why they're a member of our team. And they go from sort of like, oh, I don't want to be here, to I still don't want to be here, but man, they're feeling like a million bucks. And they, they step off that stool feeling affirmed with a, with a work community in a church where people were generous with their words and recognizing, identifying their strengths and identifying our, our love for them as being part of the team. So there's a practice here to do with our kids. There's a practice here to do with our spouses. There's a practice here to do with our employees to be generous in our words. And lastly, and this is amazing... This is not only a a psychological and and sociological benefit to hear pleasing words, but this is a theological statement that is amazing. If you remember our series, String of Pearls, I'm going to lean back on that. God is putting together in this phrase, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, a string of pearls from the Old Testament. The best equivalent would be movie references for us today. If I said... Well, since it's the book of Luke, it'd be like if we named this series, Luke says, I am is your father. See, this is why we didn't name it. They told me that was a bad idea. Okay, so if I said this, if this was the sentence I used, Luke, I am your father. And frankly, my dear, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Now, you would say that sentence means something, but immediately you would draw in the the context of those three movie references. Empire Strikes Back, Gone with the Wind, and Godfather. Jesus does this all the time with the Old Testament. He uses very specific quotes that mean something on their own value, but they bring in the context of the quotes. And he's doing that here in the most genius way, God affirming his son. This is my son, quote number one, my beloved son, quote two, in whom I am well pleased, in Hebrew, in whom my soul delights in, which comes from three passages from the Old Testament. The first one, you are my son, comes from Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. Quick background on the Bible. The Bible, Old Testament, and Hebrews was divided into three sections. The law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so that's called the law. The writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, a couple other ones, and then the prophets. So when you refer to the Old Testament, you refer to the three parts, the law, the writings, and the prophets. So God gives a quote from the writings, from the book of Psalms. Psalms 2 has a messianic psalm. One day, the Messiah will come. And when he does, he will sit on his throne, and the Father will turn to the Son and say, This is my Son. And that's the phrase he uses at this baptism. So you would bring the full context of Psalms to bear here to go, This is the one the Psalms spoke about. 
Not only are we hearing witnesses, not only are we seeing John as a witness, not only are we seeing God as a witness and the Holy Spirit as a witness, the Bible that we've read for hundreds of years and we've, we've, we've longed for the coming, this is that moment confirmed by the Father. Quote two. It's not just my son, it's my beloved son. That phrase, beloved son, a Hebrew would immediately know is a quote from Genesis. Think 26. Yeah. Isaac is going to be taken up the hill. And it says that Abraham took his beloved son to be sacrificed. And so now we're not talking about the writings, we're talking about the law. And in the law, a quote from Genesis brings the context of a father who loved his son enough to sacrifice his son. This is not only the messianic son, this is the sacrificial loved son. And he's the son in whom I am well pleased, that my soul delights in. Is a quote from the third section of the Old Testament, the prophets, where Isaiah said, speaking of the Messiah, my elect one in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased in. And what God has done here is he's strung together to say, this is my son, and the whole Bible testifies to it. All three parts, the law, the writings, and the prophets that you've heard your whole life all come to bear in this moment that this is the one you can know for sure is sent by me. Confirmed by me, seen by witnesses, and confirmed by the entirety of Scripture, you can know this is the child of God I sent. A public confirmation from the Father of what is true. Which is why this series is about how the life of Jesus confirmed the birth of Jesus. How? Because the incarnation was that God himself came to identify with us by becoming fully man. So that he could identify with our death. He died the death we should have died generously giving of himself through death on a cross. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And he offers a gift of eternal life. Which is why the incarnation is actually an invitation for you and I to be generous as well. The incarnation is an invitation to give of yourself to other people. The same way God gave to you. See, giving his best meant God not sending prophets anymore, not sending uh, priests anymore, judges anymore. No, giving his best was the incarnation he gave of himself fully by becoming a man. And that giving came in installments. There was the, the, the Psalms version of it, or going back for the Genesis version of it. Yeah, yeah, there's this beloved son who's going to have to die for you. Then there's the, the writings version of it. We start hearing about how whoever this Holy One is, he's not going to see corruption. He's not going to be left in the grave. We, we find out that he's, he's going to br- usher in a whole new era and a whole new kingdom. Then another installment. Isaiah, he's the suffering servant, and by his stripes we will be healed. And he's the one in whom God delights. He even delights to punish him to rescue his sheep, Isaiah tells us. And then Luke brings it all together to say this is the one. The ultimate generosity of God has come in the form of Jesus. Because the incarnation is an invitation to give of ourselves. To give in installments. To increasingly give of ourselves to others. The same way God has done it with us. 
And lastly, it tells us that giving requires words and action. God could have been generous and just said in heaven, he's just a generous guy. But we wouldn't know it. It required him to step into the game. It required him to speak words about his earthly son. In the same way, you can do the old, well, listen, I told my wife I loved her 20 years ago and nothing's changed. If anything changes, I'll let you know. And that's fine. But it's not very generous. God wants us to be generous with our words. Generous with our affirmation. Generous with our identification with the people around us. Our proclamation of the things we hold true. Generous with our money. In marriage, generous with our bodies, with our spouse. In our, in our families, be generous with our words of affirmation, encouragement. That we are to be generous people because we have a generous God. And the incarnation this Christmas is an invitation to be generous because we are living in a culture today who is starving. Starving for affirmation in our, in our, in our workplaces. Starving for affirmation in our families. Starving for people to identify and see us and know us and celebrate us and love us. Starving for people who will, who will actually live out this life they say they're committed to. That they will actually practice the humility and the love and the service that they say they identify with. Instead of faith just being something you believe, some dogma on the wall, that it's, it's instead happening down the hall as people are living it in families and living it in relationships. And the world is starving for living proof of people who will walk with Jesus. Humbly, not perfectly. Confessing and inviting people into the arms of God. So for a starving world, let's be those people who identify with the highs and the lows and be generous with our lives. Speaking of generosity, this time of year is a time that many people love to give. And so if you came in today, you saw we have a giving tree. So we partner every year with City Gospel Mission, with Happy Church, one of the poorest areas in the country, uh, as well as Interparish Ministries. There's ways you can buy gifts for people, for their family. Those do need to be wrapped and be back by, de- by December 3rd, next Sunday. But that might be a way you want to be generous tangibly. Maybe as you approach end-of-year giving, you think, well, I really want to be part of, of, of being part of giving to what God's done to me as a response to that, as a part of the vision I love learning about God, learning, having my kids learn about God. I want to be part of giving to that. So I don't know what God's going to prompt you to do, but let's be a generous community who celebrates a generous God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you who were rich became poor so that through your poverty we would be rich in the gospel because of the inheritance we have as your sons and daughters. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.